Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. So we started out with the major truths that are under attack today. And I just want to go through those again, just because I think it's important for us to keep uh, remembering what those are. And so number one, truth number one, and this is where we started back with creation, with Genesis 1-1, that God is the sovereign creator and ruler of everything. That's, That's where everything starts, with the sovereignty of God. God is creator. He sets the rules. He created us. Um, But the attack from our culture is this, uh, the autonomous self, myself. I'm the ruler of all things. Self-expression is the highest value. So nobody gets to tell me how I want to live. I can do what I want to do. I can be me. I don't want to go by God's rules. I want to express myself. And anybody that gets in the way of me expressing myself uh, basically uh, needs to be either silenced or they need to be dealt with in some kind of way because you're, you're infringing upon my freedom. So truth number one starts ultimately with, with God as creator. Uh, truth number two, the Bible. We talked about the Bible. Is God's inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient word. Uh, we talked a lot about how God's word is the standard for everything and how that's under attack. And so what the attack is pretty much from the progressive Christians is the Bible's not inerrant, We cannot be certain about what it says. Brings up more questions than answers. The real issue comes in questioning, but we can never be so dogmatic that we can be certain of absolute truth. Remember we said that the attitude they had towards the Bible was, well, that was the way they understood it back in those days. The way the Jewish people kind of understood it. It, it, It's not an authoritative word that comes directly from God. It's culturally um, acceptable depending on what culture you're in. And we kind of reject some of those things that are archaic. All right, number three, truth number three, Jesus is the only the only way of salvation. Not a good way, not the best way, not one of many ways. He's the only way. Um, And the attack upon that was they really look at Jesus more as a model for how to live. Uh, Jesus was a social revolutionary. Jesus was a good teacher. He was kind of a guru that gave good tips on how to live. But you can't be so narrow-minded to say that salvation comes exclusively through Christ alone. That's, that's, That's just, that's bigoted, that's intolerant in our day and age to say that Jesus is the only way. Okay, then we talked about the cross, number four. Truth number four is that a holy God must punish sin and rebellion through the substitutionary atonement of his his son. And they don't like, progressive Christians don't like the cross because the cross means you have to talk about sin. You got to talk about God's wrath, God's justice. You got to talk about hell. You got to talk about blood. All these things that, that are offensive to modern sensibilities. And so we don't want to talk about hell. We don't want to talk about sin. We don't want to talk about repentance and things like that. Then truth number five we looked at, and that is God's written word remains the eternal and righteous standard which defines the issues of marriage, gender, and human sexuality. And so we looked at God's plan from creation as far as one biological man, one biological woman. We talked about passages related to what the Bible says about um, homosexual conduct and desire. And so the attack upon that is, well, we've evolved over time 
to see that the Bible is outdated on these issues and we must be open, affirming, and accepting on how people express their gender, marriage, and sexuality. So those are the five truths that we see under attack today. They just goes right to the heart of what the basic message of Christianity is. Who God is, creation, Jesus, the Bible, salvation, the cross, human sexuality, the way that we live the Christian life according to God's word. So that's, those are the, the attacks. And then last week, we looked at the, the tactics, the five tactics or ploys or uh, methods that um, this kind of secular culture, this cultural Marxist, this um, like ungodly worldly culture is trying to um, either silence Christians, marginalize Christians, push us to the sides, this whole cancel culture thing. And so we looked at those five things. And so number one, we looked at last week, you got to rewrite history. You got to demonize the past And make everything that's our past, especially Judeo-Christian values, those things have to go so we can create this new utopia. Okay, number three, I mean, sorry, number two, we've got to use social media and schools especially to further this propaganda. We've got to get people to believe the propaganda. Logic goes out the window. We don't really worry about good argumentation. We're more driven by emotion and propaganda. Then number three, they try to curb free speech through shame and cancel culture. Um, We've seen this just this past week with two examples. Well, last week, uh, Gina Carano of The Mandalorian. I don't know if you guys have watched The Mandalorian, the Star Wars series on Disney+. Plus. Uh, She got canceled, got got fired by Disney, got fired by her agent because she is uh, not a Christian per se, but she's just a conservative, and she made some statements about being a conservative in Hollywood. Um, And so, um, and then... What's his name? Chris Harrison of The Bachelor. Um, he decided to step away because supposedly, um, you know, he's a, he's a closet racist and he needs to stop being bigoted and he needs to apologize for his whiteness and all this kind of stuff. And so just cancel culture. You cancel people if they don't fit the narrative of this new, uh, this new way of thinking. Number four, you sexualize children and you confuse them at an early age. Remember a few weeks ago I talked about that book that was geared towards four-year-olds called The Gender Fairy that was teaching them transgender issues at the age four, drag queens coming into libraries and, and stuff like that. So we want to confuse kids at a very early age. We want to over-sexualize uh, children. I'm just going to forget about this. What was the movie that came out this summer on Netflix that got a lot of, um, what's it called? I can't remember what it was called, Hotties or something. It was about Cuties. Cute cuties, hotties, I can't remember what it was called. It's about the little girls that were twerking and how they were being, they were sexualizing 11-year-old girls and it got a lot of heat. And so just, just things like that. Um, and then number five, we said celebrate socialism and denounce capitalism. Um, socialism basically says that the state tells you what to believe. The state controls everything. There's really no freedom of the individual, and that will eventually encroach upon, upon churches. And right now in Canada especially, um, there's pastors that are getting arrested for having church during COVID. Um, one church has accumulated over a million dollars in legal fees and fines uh, because they've decided to go ahead and meet um, when Canada says you can't meet, your church can't meet during, during COVID. So that's, that's where we've been the past few weeks. And so The question we're going to ask over the next few weeks, and today's kind of the big one, the next question we ask is, okay, how do we respond? What do we do about it? We can sit here and we can bellyache. We can write our congressman. 
We can go on social media and vent. Um, what do we really do? Okay, so over the next few weeks, I'm going to talk about four major things that we really need to be prepared to do to kind of respond to this. And so tonight kind of sets the foundation. Tonight's the foundation. If, if tonight's not here, what we talk about tonight, the rest of them really won't fall into place. And so here's the response that I'm going to argue for tonight. Okay, we must declare boldly, and I'm choosing these words very carefully. We must declare boldly and live out faithfully biblical truth no matter what the cost. This involves discipling the younger generation especially to be equipped with a biblical worldview on these key issues. Now is not the time to be silent. There may be a time when we're forced to be silent. Now when we have the freedom to speak, we need to be bold about what the Bible says. And not only do we need to be bold, we also need to live it out faithfully. No matter what the cost. That's a hard, that's a hard pill to swallow, no matter what the cost. And especially, we need to be instilling these biblical truths in the younger generation. Because they're going to be the future. I mean, they already are pretty much our future, but they're going to be the ones that are going to be um, leading churches, leading our nation, leading in business, leading in the arts, culture, all the things related to, to our lives. So what I want to do tonight is I want to take us on a journey through First and Second Timothy. Because First and Second Timothy are very pertinent to the life of Christians, the life of a church. How do you stand strong in the midst of a crazy culture. Now let me give you a little background before we jump into 1 Timothy. 1 and 2 Timothy are written by Paul to Timothy. Timothy is a young pastor. Okay? He's the pastor of First Baptist Church of Ephesus. No, I'm just joking. It's, he's a pastor of the church in Ephesus. And Ephesus was a town that had a lot of issues. Um, they had cult prostitutes. They had astrology and magic arts. Um, they had a lot of greed. Um, it was kind of the, um, the largest city in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And so it was a cosmopolitan city with a very ungodly culture. And Timothy was the pastor of the church in that culture. And so Paul writes these letters to him as a pastor and how he encourages the church to live out their faith. Now, it's, it's, it's geared directly to a young pastor, Timothy, but the principles that are taught to Timothy, some of them apply directly to a pastor, like the qualifications of a pastor. We're not going to look at those, but they, they apply to all Christians. So I want us to start in 1 Timothy, verse 1, and I want us to go um, just look at, look at the first few verses here. Actually, let's start in, in 1 Timothy 1, verse 3. The first couple of verses are just the greeting. Is everybody there in First Timothy? I guess I better pay attention and advance the slides here. I'm, not, <laughs> I'm used to somebody doing that for me back there. So here we go. All right. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promotes speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Technically under sheet, it should be one through four, not one through 14. Okay, so why 
why is Timothy to stay in Ephesus and remain as pastor? What does Paul say there? He says, I charge you to stay there. I urge you to stay there because there are some people that are creeping into the church that are teaching ungodly things. They're teaching a different gospel. Notice there in verse 3. I want you to stay in Ephesus so that, cert- that you can charge certain persons not to teach any different, see that in your Bible, different doctrine. What have we been looking at the past few weeks? Does progressive Christianity teach a different doctrine about key issues? Yes. Okay. And so these are um, heretical issues that are coming in to distort the gospel. Paul says it differently as far as like a different gospel. He says he uses the word dif- a different doctrine there in Timothy. But in Galatians 1, 6-9, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Here in Galatians, he says a different gospel. In Timothy, a different doctrine. Not that there is another one, but there are some of, who want to trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Now, the word accursed there, I want to give you the literal translation, okay? Let that person go to hell. It's really what it means. Let that person be condemned to hell if they teach a different doctrine, if they teach a different gospel, if somebody comes and is teaching a false doctrine, Paul says it's a very serious charge. Even if an angel comes in here, okay? So let's say an angel walks in those back doors. The angel's bright and brilliant, and he's dressed real nice, and um, he comes up here, and he says, Pastor Sean, I, I have a word from the Lord. I'm an angel, so let me speak. And I give him the pulpit, and the angel comes, and the angel stands here, and he says, I've, I've got a message for you. You Listen to me. I'm an angel. Pastor Sean, over the past few weeks, has been teaching you that the Bible's, not God, the Bible's God's word, that Jesus is the only way of salvation, and that there's such a thing as hell, and that um, God has a definition of, of marriage and sexuality. I'm here to tell you that he's actually wrong. Let me tell you exactly what it is. And the angel begins to tell you false teaching. Okay. What should we all say to that angel? Some of you are saying, move out. That's a little bit too kind. Paul says, go to hell. That's basically what he's saying. <laughs> Literally, that's what he says. Let him be accursed, even if an angel comes. Okay? And Paul's strong with that. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 4. If someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Different gospel, different Jesus. Okay, a different Jesus. What does progressive Christianity present? They present a different Jesus, a different gospel, a different belief system, okay? So these people here in Timothy are devoting themselves to false doctrines. And and so these are heretical distractions from the gospel. Notice what he says there at the end of verse 4. They devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship, the stewardship from God that is by faith. The stewardship. 
the word stewardship there, it's, it's an older word, we don't often use it, but it really comes from the root word of household or foundation. Go to chapter 3, verse 15 for a moment. What does Paul say about the church, about the stewardship of the church? In 1 Timothy 3.15, If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress of what? The truth. These men are coming in to destroy the church. And Paul says to Timothy, you stay there as a faithful pastor and don't let them do it. You teach, you correct, you guard the flock. Okay? Now, down in later on here in chapter 1, he's going to name drop and I don't think you want your name listed in the Bible under these circumstances, okay? There's, there's a few times where you really don't want your name listed, okay? Down there in verse, verse 18 and 20. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Hymenaeus and Alexander, two names there. Paul mentions them by name and says, these two guys have blasphemed the Lord. I've handed them over to Satan. They've made shipwreck of their faith. So, there is a very strong reality a very strong possibility that Christians in churches today can be deceived and make shipwreck of their faith. Now, I don't know what that literally means. So there's some debate as far as what it means to make shipwreck of their faith. Does that mean that they, quote-unquote, lost their salvation never to gain it back? I don't think the Bible teaches you can lose your salvation um, does it mean that they ruin their reputation and thus ruin the reputation of the church? Um, I really don't know what it means to make shipwreck of your faith, but it's not a good thing. What's a shipwreck? How does a shipwreck happen? You're on a boat and you're under choppy water and you usually you're not paying attention or a fog comes in or something and you, you slam up against the, the rocks or something and it basically destroys your boat and you can't go any further. Regardless of what it means, you don't want that to happen to you. You don't want to have shipwreck of your faith. You don't want to give in to false teaching. Okay? So, in 1 Timothy, Paul addresses Timothy's need to confront these false teachers. Okay? So that's really all the time we're going to spend in 1 Timothy. The, the, the rest of the time tonight, we're going to look at a couple of things outside of, of, of Timothy. But we're going to spend a lot of time in 2 Timothy. Okay? 2 Timothy, uh, I think I skipped a slide there, but you understand what I mean. I got to pay more attention since I'm doing my own slides tonight. All right, first Timothy, or 2 Timothy 1, 8 through 14. Everybody there, 2 Timothy? Same writer, Paul, same pastor, Timothy, same church in Ephesus, 
probably the, maybe some time has passed, but he's still dealing with the same issues. Okay? All right, let's start in verse 8. Therefore, do not be, what's the word? Ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher, which is why I suffer as I do, but I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I believe, and I'm convinced that he's able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of sound words that you've heard from me in faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. What's the key word in this passage of Scripture? It shows up in verse 8, and it shows up in verse 12. You guys tell me. We may do a little bit of dialoguing tonight. A little bit of ashamed. You guys hear it? Ashamed. Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. That's verse 8. Verse 12, do not be ashamed. And let's just stop ask a question. Why would any pastor or Christian be ashamed of the truth. One of the things that I see right now in our culture, especially among a lot of pastors that are, I call them evangelifish. Um, they don't have backbones. They don't want to speak out on some things. And they wouldn't say to you, I'm ashamed of the gospel, but by their silence on some things, you can be ashamed by your silence. I don't want to offend. I don't want to confront. I want to be liked. I want to be nice. I don't want the culture breathing down my neck. And so I will be ashamed of what this Bible says. And I'll preach from it, but I'll kind of water it down. And Paul says to Timothy, don't be ashamed. As a matter of fact, he goes on to say, not only don't be ashamed, but notice what he says there in verse 8. You've got to be willing to suffer. You've got to be willing to suffer for this. That may be why Timothy was ashamed, because he's like, if I'm going to stand up for truth, I may have to suffer. I don't want to suffer. I don't want to be canceled. I don't want to be silenced. I don't want to be called a bigot. I don't want to be called intolerant. I don't want to be marginalized. I don't want to be told I'm a meanie. I don't want to be told I'm a whatever word you fill in the blank. And so I don't want to suffer. So by my silence, I'm not speaking up. And therefore, in a way, I'm being ashamed of the gospel because I don't want to suffer. And then look at verse 13. Follow the pattern of sound words or sound doctrine. Let me just ask you guys a question. I know they can't maybe hear your responses on the live stream, but what does the word sound mean? Sound doctrine. Why do we use the word sound? Sound doctrine. That's kind of a term we use in Christian circles. We, we, we need to have sound doctrine. What's, what does sound mean? True, whole, healthy. When Jesus would heal people, in the Gospels, they would be made whole. In that Greek word, oftentimes, they would be made sound. So whole, healthy, true, right teaching. 
And then the word that shows up a lot in 2 Timothy is there in verse 14. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. What's the good deposit? What's the imagery here? The imagery here is Paul has given Timothy this good deposit. He's given him the truth. And Timothy is to guard it because it's been entrusted to him. So we've been entrusted with God's word. We've been entrusted with the truth. We have the truth. We need to guard it. We need to protect it. It's something that we should take very seriously that we are going to protect. We're going to guard this deposit that's been entrusted to us. And sometimes that means we may need to contend for the faith. Jude verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith, the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Now let's just talk about some words here. What does it mean to contend? What does the word fight? Does that mean we physically fight other people? No. We're to contend for what? Any old faith? The faith. So Paul here is basically, Paul and Jude, if you take these teachings together, don't be ashamed of the gospel. Be willing to suffer for the gospel. Guard the gospel. Follow sound teaching. Be willing to stand up and fight for truth. Because this is once and for all delivered to us. This is the faith. The unadulterated, unchanging, absolute truth that's been given to us in the scriptures. Okay? Now, we need to be very serious about discipling, training, teaching, encouraging, equipping the younger generation. And when I say younger generation, to me, that's everybody from my 23-year-old son down to you guys' grandkids that are what? Five and are they even that old? Lower than that. Three. Okay, so grandkids, kids. Um, we've got uh, all of you. Some, we, I look around this room and some of you have kids that are still little-ish, little kids, little kid, grandkids, grown college, adult kids, grandkids, grown kids. All of us, teenager, kid, I'm looking back. So no matter where you are in this room, you have somebody in the younger generation in your life that you can influence, okay? Now, I want to talk about the problem first, okay? What's the problem? Now, what I have shared with you over the past six weeks, 2 Timothy chapter 3 defines in nine verses, okay? So you guys ready to see this? 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 9, defines the problem that we are faced with in this current age. And by the way, when Paul says in the last days, don't think he's talking about a day in the future, like the end times, like way far away. He's talking to Timothy in, the, in that time period. So we can define the last days as the day that Jesus Christ went back up to heaven to the day that Jesus comes back. Everything in between is the last days. Now, things are going to happen as we get closer to the end. But when, when, Tim, when Paul says here, be, be, um, understand this, that in the last days these things will happen, these things are happening now. Okay? Or Paul wouldn't have told Timothy to deal with these things if he had to wait like, until the second coming. 
Okay, so these are things that are happening right now. And it'll make sense here in just a moment when we look at this list. So here we go. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. Understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. Just as John's and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith, but they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. Timothy, understand this. We're living in days of difficulty. Well, I don't know what your translation uses there. We're living in times of difficulty. Stressful times that almost seem too much to bear. This is a very rare Greek word in the Bible. I think it's only used two other times. In classical Greek outside the Bible, that word difficult was used for a raging lion, a ferocious lion, or of a raging sea. The only other time this word difficult is used is when Jesus encountered the two demon-possessed men in Matthew 8, 28. And when he came to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs so fierce that no one could pass that way. Fierce is the same word that Paul uses here of difficulty. We are living in fierce days perilous days, dangerous, terrible, raging, stressful days. Does that not make you feel good (laughs) that we're living in these days? And then he goes on and gives a list of all these sins. I'm not going to go over these sins because they're pretty pretty self-evident, but I do want to draw your attention to verse 5 because I think verse 5 represents, well, verse 5 And verse 7, I think, represent progressive Christianity. What does verse 5 say? They have the appearance. Some translations say they have the form of godliness, but denying its power. They may say they understand the Bible. They may use Christian lingo. They may talk a good game. They have the appearance of this but they don't have the power of God. They're not truly saved. They're hypocrites. And what are they doing? Verse 7, they're always learning, but never able to arrive at the truth. What did I say was one of the key tenets of progressive Christianity when it comes to the Bible? You can never come to the truth. You just got to keep learning and asking questions and doubting and being skeptical, and you never really can come to the knowledge of the truth. You just got to keep learning and asking and, and the joys and the journey of not figuring out what the Bible means. So this is the world we're living in. A raging, stressful world 
a secular, humanistic world that rebels against God. Okay, so I'm talking about the non-Christian, secular world that does not claim to, know, to believe anything about Jesus in the Bible. That world that we live in is rebelling against God. So we live in that world. And to make matters worse, not only do we have that to deal with, but we have dangerous, false, progressive Christians that also are rebelling against God. People within the church that use the Bible, that talk about Jesus, that talk about God, but are teaching false teaching. So you've got two dangerous things coming at us at the same time. You've got the culture, and you've got progressive Christians. But yeah, wolves in sheep clothing coming at us. Okay. So, before we go any further, that's the problem. Okay. What's the need, or how do we answer this problem? We may be tempted to think, well, if we just got the right officials elected, if we passed the right laws, if we just um, did this or that, And I'm not saying that we don't vote, and I'm not saying that we don't fight for those types of things, but the greatest need is not political or social, but spiritual. And I'm talking about children and youth, and even even adults here, but I'm, I'm, I'm I'm gearing this towards the next generation. The first issue we need to understand is that children need Jesus and salvation before any of these things are going to come. You cannot teach a children, you cannot teach a child to have a biblical worldview if they're not saved first. You're getting the cart before the horse. Now, we want to teach them and we want to train them, but ultimately, if, they're, if they've not been born again, if they've not been renewed from the inside out, if they've not been regenerated, then none of this stuff matters, okay? So what I want to do is I want to show you an Old Testament passage of Scripture about what God promises to do one day. So this is a promise that God says in the Old Testament, I'm going to do one day. And God is the only one speaking here. This is God speaking. I will sprinkle, and I want you to remember these images. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. Okay, so water, cleansing with water. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my my rules. What does God say he's going to do in a future day? He's going to cleanse us with water. And that's not talking about baptism. It's talking about like metaphorically an internal cleansing from your sins. And he's going to give us the Holy Spirit inside of us. A new heart. Water and spirit. It's going to happen someday, God says in the Old Testament. I'm going to do this. Okay, with that ringing in your ears as the background, I want us to jump out of Timothy and and jump into the book of John. Because Jesus addresses this head on. When the teacher of the Jews, probably one of the top teachers of the Jews, Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night and asks him a very valid question. And how does Jesus answer it? Jesus answers it by taking us back to what we just read in Ezekiel and applying it to what God's going to do right there when when Christ's come on the scene. Okay, so everybody there in John 3? Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God's with him. 
Okay, now notice the question. Not really a question. It just says, you must be from God. You must be a prophet. You're doing these miracles. You're turning water into wine. You're doing all these great things. You must be from God. And Jesus basically tells him something that, Je- that Nicodemus doesn't really ask him. Verse 3, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Okay, what's Nicodemus thinking? Jesus says, You have to be born again. Born from above. And what's Nicodemus thinking? That's kind of humanly impossible, Jesus. I've already popped out of my mother's womb and I'm a grown man. I can't get back. I don't understand what you're saying. Is Jesus talking about physical birth here? No, he goes on, and this language should be familiar to you. Verse 5, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit. Now, where have we seen water and the Spirit? Ezekiel 36. I will cleanse you with water. I will put my spirit in you. I'll give you a new heart. He cannot enter the kingdom of God. Verse 6, that which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the spirit. Jesus says to Nicodemus, you've got to experience this internal transformation that only the Holy Spirit can bring. You've got to be renewed from the inside out. You've got to be born again. You've got to be made alive. You've got to be internally cleansed. You've got to have that heart of stone taken out and that heart of flesh put in. In other words, you need to be regenerated. There's different ways the Bible speaks about this. Here it talks about being born again. In Ezekiel, it talks about having your dead, stony heart taken out in a heart of flesh. Um, In Ephesians chapter 2, 4, and 5, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. Here it talks about being made alive. You were spiritually dead. God made you alive. God caused you to be born again. God gave you a new heart. Acts 16, 14, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple cloths, a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Okay. Children, and all sinners, but we're just limiting this to kind of children, children and youth need to be regenerated, born again, saved. They need to be given a new heart. Now what happens? Changed hearts lead to transform minds and lives. This culture is attacking the mind of children. It's attacking the heart of children. Where's Satan going to go? He's going to go for the heart He's going to go for the mind. If a child's heart has not been changed by the gospel and a child's mind is not being transformed by God's word, then really all the work you're doing as a parent doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things because that change has not happened. So we must pray for the salvation of our children. Once their heart's been changed, once they become a Christian, then you begin to live a different life. This is what Paul says in Romans 12, 1 through 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, 
but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Okay, Paul there in verse 2 gives two commands. The first one's negative, something we're not supposed to do. The second one is positive, what we're supposed to do. Okay, so first of all, what does he say in verse 2? Do not be what? Conformed to this age. Do not be conformed to this age. Sometimes Paul uses the word age. When he uses the word age, it's a different word than like the physical world. It really means this present evil age over which Satan holds sway. He would say it this way in Galatians 1, 3 and 4. Grace to you and peace from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God the Father. Okay, so we live in an evil age. What did we just look at at 2 Timothy chapter 3? Is that an evil age? What have we been looking at all these past weeks? It's an evil age. And the evil age under the sway of Satan is going to try to do what? Cause you to be conformed to it. Some of the, one translation says, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Okay, so we don't want to be conformed, influenced, look like, think like, act like, be influenced, be propagandized, be discipled by this age. John says it this way in 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Do not love the world. Or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Don't love the world. Don't be conformed to the age. Don't let this culture influence your thinking, capture your heart, blind you to truth. Don't let the age have sway. Now, parents, this is where you become in as a protector. Your job is to shepherd your children from this age. Now, you can't protect them from everything. You know, we're not going to have your kids live in bubbles or on monasteries where they're away from. I mean, they're going to be in the world. But one of your goals as a parent is to shepherd your child's thinking, heart, so that the world doesn't shape the way that they view life. So the first command there is the negative. Don't be conformed. Do not be conformed to this age. Second command is positive. But positively, what's he say? Be renewed. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Constantly be renewed in your mind. Now, here's the question. How are, who does the renewing of your mind? The Holy Spirit does that. He's the one that does the renewing of your mind. How does the Holy Spirit do that? He does it through the Scriptures. So here's a very, very, um, very simple teaching. The more you put into your life the Scriptures the more your mind is going to be like Christ. The more you put in input from the world, the more your mind's going to be like the world. It's the old adage when I was growing up, they called it garbage in, garbage out. I guess it was the old um, 
the way it worked with computers back in the day. Um, garbage in, garbage out. Whatever you put in is what's going to come out. And so are you spending time in the Word? Are you praying? Are you meditating? Are you, are you saturating yourself with the Scriptures so that your mind can be transformed? The Holy Spirit does this. Um, Colossians 3, 1 through 2. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek... Seek the things where? That are above, where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not things that are on earth. Set your mind. Be renewed in your mind. Don't be conformed in your mind. And then Ephesians tells us what happens as a result of being saved by grace. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man may boast. We often stop there. That's that's salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Yeah, verse 10 tells us how we live this out. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So once we're saved by grace, once we've been transformed, once God does this work of grace in our hearts, then we live out the Christian life in the renewal of our mind by living according to God's word. Now, a few years ago, a sociologist, at the time he was at Notre Dame, he's bounced around to different, different colleges. His name's Christian Smith. He interviewed kids that grew up in youth groups all across denominations in America. Kids that grew up in church, kids that went to Sunday school, kids that went to youth group, Kids that went to Team Kid, Awana. And this is what he found out was their main belief system. He gave it a title. And I'm going to break this title down for you because I think it's pretty accurate. It's pretty much based upon empirical evidence. And I don't think it's changed much. He called it moralistic, therapeutic deism. Now let me explain. That's his term for it. I'm going to break it down and what that means. What he's saying is he's making the argument based upon empirical evidence that a lot of, a vast number of kids that have grown up in church, when they get out of church, here's their viewpoint. Here's what they fundamentally believe. Whether they've been catechized, whether they've been grown up in Sunday school, whether they've sat under preaching, when they get out in the real world, this is really what they believe, those kids that have grown up in church. Not kids that grew up outside of church. Not atheistic kids or pagan kids. Kids that grew up in church. Okay. Moralistic. So three key tenets. Okay. Number one. The first tenet is, I know God exists. He's the the grandfather in the sky. He doesn't have that much to do with my daily life. I'm just going to acknowledge there's a God. I know there's a God. If somebody asks me if I believe in God, yeah, I believe in God. Is he sovereign? Is he the ruler of your life? No, he's just a God. He's just God. I'm not going to deny God. I'll still believe in God. But here's the second one. This God wants me to be nice. There's the moralistic. This God wants me to be nice. So there's a God, kind of a distant God. He's up there, and he just wants me to be nice to people. Obey the golden rule. If I'm just nice and a nice person, this God will like me. God will accept me. And then, I think this is the most telling one, therapeutic, he wants me to be happy. God wants me to be happy. I can do whatever feels good. There's no consequences because after all, self-expression, being fulfilled, 
are the greatest values. Moralistic, God wants me to be nice. Therapeutic, God wants me to be happy. Deism, there is a God, but he doesn't have that much to do with my life. They're not going to functionally say they're atheists, but they're going to say, if there is a God and he does exist, he or she wants me to be happy and to be nice. Now, here's the problem. In this worldview, if that's all there is, God wants you to be happy and he wants you to be nice, the greatest sin is to stand in the way of that freedom to find this happiness and fulfillment. So what if the pastor or a parent comes along and says, I don't care if you want to be happy, what you're doing is sinful and you need to stop. I don't care if you think that you need to be nice. That's not going to have you. That's, yeah, you need to be nice, but that doesn't mean, that's not what saves you. You're saved by grace, not by works. Anytime you challenge somebody's comfort, self-pleasure, their happiness, you're encroaching upon their freedom, and how dare you do that? Because after all, God would want me to be happy. Have you ever heard people say that? God just wants me to be happy. I've been in counseling sessions with husbands and wives that have gotten divorces because of an adulterous relationship. And I've had people literally say to me, you know, God just wants me to be happy. And this is what I'm doing. I've prayed about it. It's amazing. I actually had one couple say to me that this was an adulterous relationship. I can't remember if it was the husband or wife. It's been years ago. I think it was the wife. And she said something like this. It's a God thing that this person brought me. It's a God thing that me and this person got together that I had an affair on with my husband because he gets me and he understands me and we met at work and he just kind of emotionally met my needs and my husband wasn't there for me and it's just a God thing that we're brought together because after all, God wants me to be happy. People say stuff like that. That's the culture that a lot of kids believe. So, Let's just come face to face with reality. Face to face with reality. The culture, the secular worldly culture is hostile to God. The progressive Christian movement is hostile to God and they're confusing they're, they're confusing believers and distorting the gospel, they're rejecting truth. Unsaved children need to be saved, they need to be transformed, they need to be born again. And once they're born again, their minds need to be shaped by the truth. Their hearts need to be shaped by the truth. And then many children grow up and they abandon what they believe in church to embrace this moralistic, therapeutic deism. So, now that I've totally discouraged you and depressed you, now I'm going to challenge you. This may be more depressing, but here we go. The responsibility of parents and by extension, grandparents. We're going to look at Old Testament passages and New Testament passages that speak directly about parenting. What's the role of a parent? Not the role of the youth pastor. Not the role of the Sunday school teacher. Those have a place. And we definitely appreciate our youth pastor and our Sunday school teachers and our growth group leaders and our what the, the, the volunteers that are taking your kids right now. But... The Bible teaches that you as a parent have the primary responsibility for raising and discipling and and shaping your kid. Psalm 127 verse 3. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Children are a heritage. 
God has given you your children. He's not giving your children to anybody else. He's given them to you. You are to steward and raise your children. Now, we're going to turn to Deuteronomy. So we're going to look at Deuteronomy and Psalms, and then we're going to turn to the New Testament. But Deuteronomy has a lot to say about teaching the next generation. Because I want to remind you of something. What happens in Exodus, Exodus chapter 19, Moses, well God, God tells Moses to assemble the entire nation, probably two million people, at the base of Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments. At the base of Mount Sinai, there's the day, three days before the Ten Commandments, there's, there's earthquakes, there's shaking, God speaks, the people freak out, God says, you got three days to get ready, and then... Moses gives in Exodus 20 the Ten Commandments. Now, we know what happened in the book of Numbers to that generation that received the Ten Commandments at the base of the mountain. What happened in Numbers chapter 13 and 14? They went in, they spied on the land, and they came back and said, there's giants in the land, we can't take it. Joshua and Caleb, the two said, we can do it. And everybody else said, you're crazy. They rebelled against Moses, and what did God say? you're going to wander for 40 years in the wilderness and die. And you're not going to enter the promised land. Your children will. So that generation dies. Moses has their kids who are now kind of grown up after 40 years. They're on the brink of going into the promised land. And Moses is there at the, at the plains of Moab getting ready to cross over in the promised land. And he turns and he preaches to the parents. And he says, listen, your parents royally failed. Don't do the same. I'm going to reiterate to you the importance of teaching these things to your children and to your children's children because your parents did not get to enter the promised land like you are because they failed. Don't repeat that mistake. So a lot of what Moses teaches in Deuteronomy is to parents to make sure that they train their kids who can train their kids in the next generation. So let's go to um, Deuteronomy chapter 4. Let's start in verse 9. And um, Moses is preaching to the people and he's going to remind them of what their parents saw back in Exodus 19 at the base of Mount Sinai with the shaking and the quaking and then he's going to talk about the golden calf and all that kind of stuff. So let's pick up in Deuteronomy 4. Uh, 9 through 20. Moses says, Only take care. Keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. Make them known to your children and to your children's children. How on the day that you stood before the Lord, probably when they were little kids, how on the day that you stood before the Lord your God at, at Horeb, at Mount Sinai, the Lord said to me, gather the people to me that I may let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth and that they may teach their children so. And you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud and gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. And he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform. That is the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and rules that you might do them in the land that you're going over to possess. You see what Moses is doing? Probably the people that are standing before him right now were little kids at that time. Maybe some were teenagers. 
They probably, most of them hadn't, if they had reached the age of 20, they were probably part of the generation that was considered an adult and died. So they were 20 or under back when Moses gave them the Ten Commandments. And what's Moses saying? You remember when you were a little kid, there with your parents at the base of the mountain, when you received the law, you received the Ten Commandments, you saw God show up in power. You teach that. Your kids aren't, weren't there. You were there. You teach that. You teach that to your children. Because as he goes on to say, there's going to be a major temptation in what happens if you don't teach your children. Okay, let's keep moving. What does he say? Verse 15. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully. Since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourself in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that's on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that's in the water under the earth. And beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven. And when you see the sun and moon and stars and the host of heavens, you be drawn away and bowed down to them and serve them. Things that the Lord your God has allotted to all peoples under the whole heaven. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron of furnace of Egypt to be a people for his own inheritance as it is to this day. What did these little kids see their parents do after they received the Ten Commandments? Moses goes up the mountain, the golden calf, the worst display of idolatry. Moses is so mad he comes down, he breaks the commandments and wants to destroy them. So he he says to parents, parents, idolatry is real. Idolatry is real. You, you can be swept away by idolatry, but your kids definitely can. So you need to teach kids God's moral law, the Ten Commandments, and you need to teach them to not give in to idolatry. One of the concepts that a lot of children don't have today is God's moral law. And that's summarized in the Ten Commandments. Now, we can get so caught up on, you know, we don't have to obey the Ten Commandments to be saved. No, you don't obey the Ten Commandments to be saved, but it is still God's eternal moral law that he wrote with his own finger, and it was on tablets. And so, are you teaching your children the, the um, foundational, eternal laws of God that our culture, how does our culture attack the Ten Commandments? What's commandment number one? You shall have no other God. What was the very first attack I said? You are the God. You can do whatever you want. Children, honor your father and mother that it may go well with you. What's the culture say? Disrespect your parents. You shall not commit adultery. That's all sexual sins right there in that category. Shall not bear false witness. You shall not steal. You shall not murder. All these different things. We need to be teaching our children that. Okay, now let's go over to Deuteronomy 6, the famous passage of Scripture where Moses gets a little bit more specific in teaching children. This has historically been called the Shema, S-H-E-M-A, the Shema. And the reasons why it's called the Shema is because the Hebrew word Shema means to hear, to listen. And that's how it starts with the word Shema in the English translation here. So Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. 
You've probably heard this before, but you maybe haven't gone all the way through the following verses. Hear, Shema, hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. We often stop right there. Verse 7. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house. And when you walk by the way. And when you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them as signs on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Notice all the different activities that Moses tells them in relation to teaching children. Teach your children diligently. Talk about the things of God often. Bind them on your hands, put them on your forehead, write them on your walls, put them on the gate when you walk up, when you get up in the morning, talk about them, when you lie down, talk. It's like the totality of your life is teaching your children these things in structured times and in the ebb and flow of life. And there's three big categories here. When Moses addresses what goes on in the house, I'm sorry, when Moses um, tells them to bind them on the hands and eyes, like put them on your, uh, your hands and on your frontlets of your eyes. This is kind of symbolic about how the individual, like you as an individual, it's your own individual hand. Like you're always looking at your hand, you're doing stuff with your hands, your eyes, your head, what you think. It's kind of symbolic of you, the individual, you need to be thinking about God's word, always having God's word before you. Okay, when he talks about in the house, when you walk, when you lie down, this is more the family. Not just the individual, but is God's word permeating your family? Is it in your house? And then when Moses addresses the gate, he's almost talking about how society, like when you leave your house and you go out to the gate, the city gates, how God's word is to permeate everything. And so really what he's saying here is God's word and loving God is to really permeate your entire life. And parents, you are to diligently teach these truths to your kids in all places. Talk about it. When you talk, when you walk, when you're in the car, when you're at Subway, when your kid comes and cries because they got in trouble, all the different times in life you're to be talking to them about God's word. So Deuteronomy has a lot to say about teaching children. Now let's go to Psalms. Psalm 78. Psalm 78, 1 through 7. This is a long psalm, so we're not going to look at the whole psalm. We're just going to look at the first. Yeah, because this has got 72 verses. Does yours have an uninspired title? Like, you know how some of the translations put the title of the psalm? What what is, I know the ESV has, what, what does your Bible say is the kind of the title of this psalm? Psalm 78. In Psalm 78? Okay. God's kind, what, what else does it say? Does anybody else have anything that says anything different? Yeah, tell the coming generation. It's, it's basically, God. here's the whole psalm. God was kind to you Israelites when he should have destroyed you. Tell that to the, to the, to the next generation. Okay. So we're going to just read the first um, seven verses here. Psalm 78, 1 through 7. 
It's a mascal of Asaph. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from a mold. Things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. Verse 4, important. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He has established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. Now, verse, verse 4 is kind of telling. <laughs> Did it kind of strike you as kind of weird, verse 4? We're not going to hide these things about God from the children. Now, my question is, why would you as a parent want to hide God's word from your child? Do we intentionally hide these truths? Probably not. Or do we passively not address them and expect pastors and Sunday school teachers? Yeah. Or do we passively expect Pastors, youth pastors, Sunday school teachers to do all the work of discipling the next generation. Do not hide these from the children. It almost sounds like what Paul told Timothy. What did Paul tell Timothy? Do not be ashamed of the gospel. Don't hide these from the next generation. Tell the next generation. And and what does God command parents to teach their children? Number one, this is down in verse um, seven. Number one, they should set their hope in God. Set their hope in Christ. Again, this starts with salvation. Set your hope in God. Find your, have faith in Christ. Um, none of this matters unless your children are saved by grace. It starts with one of the things, your, your, your goal as a parent is to shepherd your child's heart to them trusting in Christ for salvation. Now again, you can't control that. You can't make them become a Christian, but you can Tell them the gospel, teach them the gospel, encourage them in the gospel so that they will set their hope in Christ. They will become a Christian. And not to, number two, not to forget the power and glory of God. Not forget the works of God. And number three, keep his commandments. Be obedient. So parents, your goal is to teach your children not to become idolaters. Teach your children diligently to love the Lord their God with their whole heart, soul, soul, mind, and strength. To teach them to put their hope in God. To teach them to glorify God. To teach them to keep His commandments. That's the Old Testament. Okay? We're just going to look at one verse in the New Testament. By the way, I've been asked this question before. Why are there so few verses on parenting in the Bible? I'm pretty much shared with you all of them that there are. And there's a few Proverbs about sparing the rod and, you know, spoiling the child. It's an interesting question. For such a huge task as there is, why is there such little information on parenting? Now, I have some opinions on this. One of it is that you don't want to have a cookie-cutter approach and be legalistic because every child's different. 
you guys know that they have multiple children. But I think part of it is, is so that you can rely upon the wisdom of the scripture and the power of the Holy Spirit to raise your children um, in the Lord. It's just an interesting question because Paul in Ephesians 6, 4 has one verse. Okay? One verse on parenting. Has a lot to say about marriage. One verse on parenting. Like, Paul, could you give us more than just one verse? I'd like a whole book. First parenting. First and second parenting. First, second, and third parenting would be great. The gospel according to John's instructions on parenting. I mean, you'd love to have more information. Here's what, here's what Paul says in Ephesians 6.4. And it's talking to fathers, but by extension mothers, parents. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. But instead, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. There's not a lot there, okay? But let me just kind of give you a couple things here. First of all, he says, bring them up. Means to nourish a child, raise a child, provide physically, emotionally. It's basically to to bring up a child, to raise a child. Okay, how are you to raise the child? Two ways, Paul says. The first way is in the discipline of the Lord. Now, this is more the general teaching of God's word where we disciple a child in the truths of Scripture. This focuses more on the intellect, more on the mind, teaching them the truths of Scripture, where you just kind of teach them what the Bible says. That's the discipline. It's more just the general teaching. You teach them the Bible stories. You teach them what God's Word says. It's more, um, and we'll talk a little bit about how to do that here in just a moment. The second one is the word instruction. This is more specific, more specific correction that comes from uh, addressing behaviors and beliefs in real life situations. It's more warning them, correcting them, dealing with bad behavior after the fact. It's more geared towards the will and the emotions. It's more like, okay, you did this wrong. Here's how the scripture speaks about that. Let me correct you in a real life situation of something you've done versus the first one's more generally teaching. So you generally teach them the scriptures and then there's times where based upon their behavior and based upon their thinking, you may have to come in and correct and rebuke and train and and redirect based upon those specific situations. All right. Now back to 2 Timothy. Aren't you glad we took a little detour? We're back. All right. 2 Timothy. Remember what we said there in chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. This is, so, so, Paul's back to Timothy. What does he say? Follow the pattern of sound words that you've heard from me in, in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you, Timothy. Okay, so Timothy... You've been given a good deposit. You've been given the scriptures. You've been given the truth. You need to, that's been entrusted to you. That's been taught to you. That's been given to you. Guard it. Okay, now let's go into chapter two. And let's look at the same language. Timothy, you as a pastor have been entrusted. But I want you to do something with what you've been entrusted with. 2 Timothy 2, 1 through 2. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that's in Christ Jesus. And what you've heard from me and the presence of many witnesses entrust, there's the word, to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. 
Entrust to faithful men. Okay, Timothy had been entrusted the gospel. He's to turn around and entrust that to others. The word entrust there in the original language means to transmit safely to another person. To make sure the gospel doesn't get lost. To teach it diligently, carefully, so that there's no confusion. Don't water it down. Now, in Timothy's case here, he's to entrust this to faithful men, probably elders in the church. But I want you to look at, there's four generations in that passage. In verse 2, there's four generations of passing down the faith. Where does it start with? Who's writing to Timothy? Paul. Paul, okay, Paul's at the top of the food chain here, okay? And, and where did it come? Jesus gave it to Paul. Okay, Paul says, I'm giving it to you, Timothy. Does it stop with Timothy? No, he says, I want you to entrust it to others, Timothy. And what are those others supposed to do? Be able to entrust it to others. And so it goes all the way down. Why are you here today as Christians? Because somebody told you about Jesus and somebody told them about Jesus and you can trace it back. It'd be interesting to trace back your spiritual family tree. Like who was the person that told 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 the person that eventually told you? Somehow the gospel came to you because it got passed down. And so Timothy is specifically addressing like elders and, and leaders, but I think by extension... The issue is, are you as a parent, a grandparent, a Christian, are you entrusting, are you passing down, are you passing the baton of the faith down to someone else who needs to grow in their faith? Are you entrusting that message to others? I want you to think about something for a moment. I want you to think about... Who is the one person that's been instrumental in your spiritual growth? If you could sit back and say, there's one person in my life who invested the most to make sure I knew Jesus, who would that person be? Maybe it's a parent, maybe it's a grandparent, maybe it's a Sunday school teacher, maybe it's a pastor, maybe it's a mentor, maybe, you know, maybe, maybe it's you know, a coworker. Somebody invested in you. How are we going to invest in the next generation? Now, I want you just to go back to 2 Timothy 3. Because remember I said the problem? Remember 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 9? We live in an evil, perilous, dangerous time. All these people are sinning. Uh, we're living in this day of, of craziness. And I like the way he starts in verse 10. So 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10. We'll have to go back and remember what we talked about earlier. You, however, you're different, Timothy. You, however, you followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. And this is where I want to focus, verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, 
knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Timothy, verse 14, I want you to continue. The word means to abide, to stay fixed, to stay rooted, to stay planted. In what? I want you to continue in what you've learned and what you firmly believed. Stick with it. Continue in it. In Colossians 2, 6-8, Paul says, Therefore, as you've received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him, rooted, rooted in him, built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. One of my key fears as a parent, as a pastor, are people going to continue in the faith? Are they going to stay planted? Are they going to stay rooted? Are they going to abide in that? 1 John 2, 24. Let what... Well, here we go. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and the Father. What you learned from the beginning, let it abide in you. Continue in what you've learned. Don't deviate Stay firmly planted, stay rooted, continue, hold fast. And then Paul says, Timothy, I want you to remember something. Here's the question. Okay, from whom did Timothy learn the truths of the gospel? Look there at verse 14. But as for you, continue what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. Okay, that brings up a question. From whom did Timothy learn the truth? Go back up to chapter 1, verse 5. Chapter 1, verse 5 tells us where he learned it. Chapter 1, verse 5. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother, Lois, and your mother, Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you. Where did Timothy learn the faith? from his grandmother and from his mom. Now his dad was probably a Gentile, unbeliever, and his mom and grandma were probably Jewish. So this gives hope to single moms or moms whose husbands aren't in the picture that you can raise a godly young man as a grandmother and as a mother. So his grandmother and his mother, and even Paul too. So, But, but notice the context. Look at verse 15. How from... Go back to chapter 3, verse 15. Okay, so Timothy, continue in what you've learned. Hold fast. Stick with it. Don't deviate. Remember who you learned it from. Your grandmother and your mother poured into you. And look at what he says there in verse 15. How from childhood, how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Timothy, you've been taught since childhood from your grandmother and your mother. Stick with what they taught you. 
what did they teach Timothy? Was it their opinion? What does it say there? Verse 15. How from childhood you've been acquainted with what? The sacred writings. Now for Timothy, what were the sacred writings? Was the New Testament written when Timothy was? It's the Old Testament for Timothy. Timothy from probably age five. Age five was when Jewish little boys began their learning. Childhood. At around age five, Timothy, your grandmother and your mother began teaching you the Old Testament. And you got saved as a little boy because they invested in you. And then I came along, Timothy, and I poured into you and I taught you. And now you're the pastor of this church. You need to continue in what you learned from your grandmother, what you learned from your mother, what you learned from me, because you're the pastor now and you need to be passing this on to elders, passing this on to leaders, passing this on to parents who can pass it along so that we have a bunch of Timothys growing up who were raised by godly parents and who continue in the faith. So he learned it from childhood. Now, in the short time we have left, I've got some ways you can do this. How can you do this? Well, three ways you can do this in your home. One is catechism. This is what we do on Sunday mornings. We go through this book. Every Sunday we we read a question. I've got a bunch of these books. These these actually are $5, but um, it's called Truth and Grace Memory Book. Okay? Now, you may be thinking about, okay, catechism is kind of a weird thing. It sounds Roman Catholic. Um, We as Baptists, we as evangelicals don't catechize. Don't be scared off by the word catechize. It just means to instruct. It's a Greek word for instruct. As a matter of fact, um, it was said of Apollos in Acts chapter 18, 24 through 25. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed. Greek word katekeo, he'd been catechized. He'd gone through catechism in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. Okay. When my son Aidan was growing up, we did not call it catechism. We called it questions. Because that's what a catechism is. You ask, you ask a question, and they give the answer. And they learn truths of the scripture by giving a question, giving an answer, you give a scripture. And so how is the book made up? What what, what is this made up? It's made up of different parts. Okay, so part one is questions about God, man, and sin. Who made me? God made me. Did God create heavens? Yes, God. You know, different things about man, sin, creation, God. Uh, The second part is the Ten Commandments. Takes him through every commandment. What's the first commandment? That's where we are on Sunday morning. So this Sunday, I think we'll be on the second commandment. Part three is questions about salvation, all about what it means to come to faith in Christ. Part four takes you through the Lord's Prayer. How do you pray? Part five is questions about the Bible, questions about baptism, Lord's Supper, being part of a church. And then part five is questions about last things. So it's a, it's a question and answer thing. So we used to do this at the bus stop with Aiden. So like question number one, I just opened right to it. Who made you? little Johnny, who made you? Answer, God made me. So for a three-year-old, it's easy. Now, as you get older, you kind of, as Aiden got older, I got a little bit more theological and said, okay, Aiden, tell me the difference between justification and propitiation. Okay, that, that was like when he was 15. When he was like in kindergarten, it was, who made you? God made me. Okay, 
let's read Genesis 1.26. God made them in his image, male and female. He made them in his image. So let's practice this again, Aiden. Who made you? God made me. Isn't that really cool, Aiden, that God made you, that he created you? And because God created you, we live under his leadership. Let's think about how we can think about this day that God made me and how I can live for him. Okay, just real quick, catechism. This, this book teaches you how to do that, okay? So catechism is one way you can just, no matter what age your kid is, usually start them out a little bit younger. Um, this is geared towards, I think, probably eight, age eight to about 11, um, but you could probably do it with younger kids. You may have to modify the language. Okay, the second thing you can do is what we call family worship. So catechism number two is family worship. Um, this book is free. This is a book on just how do you do family worship. Family, catechism focuses more on teaching them doctrine, teaching them beliefs. Family worship is more getting to their heart. This is where you share prayer requests as a family. This is where you may sing as a family. This is where the dad or the mom gathers everybody. And you can do this however it works for your family. And, 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 and don't take longer than five or ten minutes or you're going to lose your child's attention. But you gather everybody together. Dad and mom gets them together. How was your day, boys and girls? Or how was your day? Good. Anything we can be praying about today? Give prayer requests. Okay, let's pray. Maybe somebody reads a passage of scripture. If you don't sing as a family, maybe you play something on a CD that you all like and you listen to it and you close in prayer. Don't make it longer than 10 minutes or you're going to lose kids. So this book's free if you want a book on family worship. So catechism, family worship. Uh, Number three, this is kind of more organic. Shaping worldview by limiting exposure to cultural influences. This is where you discuss culture. This is where you discuss social media. Discuss what they're learning at school. Okay. This is where our youth pastor is going to be helpful to you. Okay. Because the Wednesday after spring break, Pastor Andrew and I are swapping places. Okay. I'm going to go lead the youth group. He's going to do a seminar in here for parents on things that he's seen as youth pastor that you need to be aware of in regards to social media, phones, technology, worldview, the things that are kind of on the cutting edge of what your teenagers and children are dealing with, he's going to lead that for you. So you can kind of be aware of that. But it's your role as a parent to talk about stuff. You know, do, do you limit, do you put blockers on their phone? Net nanny or whatever. There's different types of blockers on their phone, on their devices. Do you limit that type of stuff? Do you talk about what they're learning at school? Do you discuss these types of things? Remember what Deuteronomy said, 6 said? On the way, as you walk, as you sit down, as you go to bed. Okay? So those are the three ways you do it in the home. You can catechize your child. You can do family worship with your child. And just be ready to discuss and talk with them about things that are going on in their life and stuff that they're dealing with. Okay, things that they can do outside the home. One primary thing you can do to help your child outside the home is this. Bring him here to church to sit under sound preaching week in and week out. If you go on and read the rest of the passage, chapter 4, verse 1, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, exhort, rebuke, With complete patience and teaching for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. We talked about this 
a few weeks ago. But one of the ways that you can help your children is just to bring them to church where they're around God's people, they hear the truth, they hear preaching, they see it modeled by adults, they sing the gospel, they hear it, uh, bring, bring them to church. Um, now, I'm just going to, for the sake of time, I'm going I'm to skip kind of an explanation of those things we talked about before. This seems like an overwhelming task for parents. Oh, this is laying a burden on me. Let me give you one passage of scripture that's an encouragement. Any, any encouragement. Second Peter 1, 3-4. His divine power has granted to us some little few things. Is that what your Bible says? His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his very precious and great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. His divine power has given you everything that you need. So parents, it may seem like an overwhelming task to do this and I will say it is. But through the power of the Holy Spirit in your life, relying upon the Lord, relying upon resources that God gives you, the church, you can do this by his power alone. If you do it in your own flesh, you'll get frustrated. You need the power of God. And the promise here is that he's given you everything you need. You just need to ask God's power. doesn't mean it's going to be easy, but it does mean that his power is available for you. And that doesn't mean that if you do everything perfectly, your kid will turn out right. I don't ever want to minister guilt to people by saying, if you follow these formulas and you do everything and I prayed for my kid and I taught him and I catechized him and we did family worship and I brought him to team kid and I brought him to Awana and I brought him to youth group and I brought him to, he went to summer camp and he went to winter camp and he went to youth group and he went to mission trip. We did all these things and he turned out to be a prodigal. That may happen. I don't want to lay a guilt trip on you and say that, you know, you did everything right and now it's your fault that this kid walked away. You can still do everything right and a child may walk away for a season and you pray for he or she to come back to the faith. But the point is, is that God has given you everything you need through his power for life and for godliness. And that everything you need means in parenting. Um, So I think I've gone over time. As a matter of fact, Yep, I've gone two minutes over time. So, there are no times for questions because you've got to go be good parents and pick up your kids so that the teachers aren't upset that their kids are not being picked up. So let me pray for you, and then we'll, uh, if you do have questions, you come up afterwards talk. Father, thank you for this time that we had tonight. A lot of information on parenting, on leading, on entrusting, and equipping the next generation. Lord, I know it's been a lot of scriptures that we have to think about. Lord, give us the grace to be able to do that. Lord, I know it's overwhelming. Help us just to remember this last scripture that you've given us everything that we need by your power. Your divine power has given us everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. And Lord, that means parenting, grandparenting, encouraging and equipping. Lord, help us walk out of here with hope that through your power and through your grace and through the Holy Spirit, uh, we can be the parents you've called us to be. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.